Welcome to another episode of the Montgomery Companies Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Montgomery. Uh, Today is special to me for two reasons. Number one, we've got a man that we're gonna interview that will share his truth, that has a lot to say, given the current environment that we're in and the racial injustice that we've experienced in today's America. But secondly, he's just a really great friend and somebody that I've known for a long time. Uh, It's always an honor to hang out with you, DDA, and today I get to hang out with you in a different way. But I want our audience, I want the people listening to know who you are. So uh, my friend, DDA Occident, is from Richmond, Virginia. He's a father, he's a husband. They've got two young children. He's married to Sarah, his wife, and DDA is the founder of Occident Wealth Management. He is also the founder of the Secure the Bag Financial Literacy Program, He works with several Division I football programs and Division I sports teams across America. That number is growing every day. But today, we're not going to talk about DDA's success in financial services. We're not going to talk about his Secure the Bag financial literacy program. Uh, We're going to talk about his voice in the space of race and racial injustice. And DDA, I think one of the things that makes you special is your ability to step in the gap and speak your truth. And because you have a voice that people listen to, you've been asked to be on Charlie Ward's podcast recently, a former Heisman Trophy winner. You were recently interviewed and had a conversation with John Schlifsky, CEO at Northwestern Mutual. And for as long as I've known you, you've had this massive tribe of friends. And you are friends with so many different types of people from different backgrounds, different ethnic groups, different personalities. And one of the things that makes you so special is your ability to understand people. And so today, man, I just want you to know it's an honor to be able to kick it with you, to hang with you, and to hear your voice and your truth on a topic that is so important given the current environment. So thanks for being on with us today. Yeah, definitely, man. Thanks for having me, buddy. So given the current environment and all that has transpired over the last few months, tell us how you are feeling right now. Um hopeful i think for the first time in my life i feel as though this country is more ready than it has been to have these conversations which is which is wonderful i think the conversation about race in america is one that really comes down to what plagues many of us in business right i know you're a coach you motivate people you talk about what we need to do to be successful, right? And one of the things that delays most everybody's success is procrastination and avoidance. And this is a topic that our country has procrastinated and avoided for years and years and years. And throughout history, you know, we have these flashbulb moments where progress happens and then we go back to avoiding the conversation, right? So just like in business or in life, we cannot get anywhere you can't solve a problem that you, doesn't, you, that you don't acknowledge exists. And the first step is acknowledgement, right? And we were here and now it's, all right, how do I, now that I've acknowledged the problem, how do I work towards fixing it? So I feel like that's where we are. That's, that's what makes me hopeful. Well, I think many people in our country are maybe for the first time or uh, one of the first times they're, they're starting to ask the tough questions. They're doing a little more reflection Admittedly, uh, I've tried to increase my self-awareness specifically on, on this topic and my own understanding and my own blind spots. And I catch people, and I know you catch people making statements like, we don't tolerate racism. 
And I've heard you speak about that statement, that specific statement before. Tell me what's troubling to you about the statement, we don't tolerate racism. Yeah, I think what we've done in this country is we have done an excellent job of getting to the space where we can say we don't tolerate overt acts of racism, right? So we, if we have somebody who says something, does something that we all as a society have deemed as racist, it is no problem to get them out of their position or not tolerate that individual act. We've gotten really good at boiling things down to individual acts. But what we fail to recognize is that racism is not just acts, it is the system, the construct of how we live. It is woven into the fabric of our schools, our communities, our businesses. So you can't eradicate a disease by going after these individual acts. You have to treat it at the root, which is the system in which we live. And I think that system oftentimes, like there's, there's microaggressions, right? There's things that happen that, that maybe the, the uh, average white person is not viewing as racist. Can you speak to that a little bit and how that shows up in our everyday life? Yeah, sure. So microaggressions are, and this is a lot of times for me, right? So there, there's levels of racism. There's levels of things that are inappropriate that happen microaggressions are just going to be things that as an African-American you learn to live with and you learn that this is just the construct of the world that you live in that you know can you can I touch your hair or why do black people do this or the view of or just people constantly questioning the validity of your life or your experiences where there's pushback and where you're not to be believed because you're a person of color, right? So where I'll say, hey, this is something that bothered me or happened to me and someone will push back and say, well, what makes you think that was about your race, right? Or, or that, that's happened to me too. So it's, it's this constant microaggressions are extremely painful because they're not, they're things that don't rise to the level of I need to go out and protest this, but they're, they're, they're demeaning on a level where you feel less than. And these are the things, little things that chip away at your confidence and make you feel less than on a continuous basis. You know, we, we've talked a lot, you and I, about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and organization. And for whatever reason, there's, there's people in our country that have a real issue with Black Lives Matter. And there's almost this counter narrative or mantra that all lives matter. Uh, explain to me as an African-American person, why all lives matter would be offensive to you. Um, sure. I, you know, and, and one of the things that I wish is when black lives matter <laughs> came up with the slogan, they had said all lives matter because I, I sometimes wonder what the, there would have been some counterpoint to that. <laughs> I, I always wonder what that would have been. Um, but I think it's simple. At what point in this country's history have black lives mattered? Have black people been protected the way white lives have been? So when we're looking at, we're looking at black lives matter and we've all heard kind of these these comparisons where 
this is about justice and this is about a group of people who systemically have suffered for hundreds of years, hundred years of impre- uh, oppression, both you know, in slavery, into reconstruction, into Jim Crow, to segregation, to now, right? This is a group that has suffered all those injustices and it is addressing that, that group of people's injustice, right? It's like we talk about cancer, you know, if you say breast cancer awareness, no, no one's gonna tell you all cancers matter. Or what about colon cancer, right? It is simply about this, this is what, it doesn't take away from any, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. There are lots of problems in this, in this world, but it's just a deflection from having the conversation. Again, it is a, we are, America is, has a master's in avoidance. And it is just another way to deflect and, and not address the issues that you don't want to address, which are, the systemic police brutality, systemic racism, all of the things that have plagued this country for over 400 years. Yeah, I think that analogy about, you know, raising an issue, if, if there was a breast cancer, you know, 5K to raise awareness and raise money for, for breast cancer research, uh, nobody would be on the sideline, you know, screaming, you know, prostate cancer matters too. You know, we need to raise funds for that too, right? Like, that's not the world that we live in, but for whatever reason, there, there's a real pushback with a certain group of people in our country around the Black Lives Matter narrative. And, and, and maybe you would consider that to be a, a microaggression, right? It's like the, the fact that you're telling me all lives matter, I find offensive when we're just trying to raise awareness for, for an issue that's clearly an issue and has been an issue for a long time. Yeah, it, it's... It's an issue where it's, you know, the same thing I always talk about, you know, with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and people wanting to make it about the flag, right? And they'll say, oh, well, some people will say, I don't necessarily disagree with the message. I disagree with the method, right? Or I just don't want to see that at his work or I go to escape. And it's the, the idea that, and what you're really saying is you've made it hard for me to ignore this. I have, you've made, you're making me think about something I don't want to think about, right? You're making me uncomfortable. So that's the beauty of it is that when people, this is direct action to change, it's no different than what happened in the 650s and 60s. They are, the point of protest, the point of these things is to make it impossible to ignore because what we are good at, again, is avoiding speaking about something. So when we can ignore it, we can know it exists and know it's bad and just go on with our lives as if it's, it's not happening. But if, if what you're trying to avoid is in your face directly, that is where people get uncomfortable. Well, so, let, let's, so let's go backwards a little bit, right? Um, you, you've got some really interesting perspective on the protests, you know, and again, one of the narratives, you know, so much of this conversation with you, DDA is about debunking certain narratives and you're really good at that, right? Because you've seen a lot and you've experienced a lot. You've had a lot of different conversations with different types of people. But one of the narratives I think that exists is that the protests have turned violent. Therefore they're bad. Um, Give us a window into your thinking on the protests and even some of the violence and, and then, I'd love for you to elaborate on the change that could come as a result. So it's the protest. It's 
again, it's a deflection, right? So it, it, the same people who will say the protests are violent, the protesters are you know, bad, right? You're talking about a small minority of protesters. So the same people that will say not all cops are bad will demonize the entire protests. And the fact is nothing, no change has ever come in this country peacefully or without resistance or struggle, right? The oppressor does not voluntary give, voluntarily give progress to the oppressed. That is, that's not how the world works. So, you know, we, we, we love to kind of talk about Dr. Martin Luther King and say, oh, King did this, King did that. But we realize the final part of the, the Civil Rights Act was not passed while King was alive. He died fighting for that. And six days, there was riots and protests, burning buildings, carnage all over the country. And guess what? Six days after he took that bullet, that's what got civil rights legislation finally passed, right? So we, we can talk about King did everything you would want, was an incredible symbol, but even he, he had to die when six days later, we got our, we got the final piece of legislation passed that we needed. It really at the, at the peak of violence, right? And, and I don't think, and just want to be clear, you don't condone violence. I certainly don't condone violence, but, but your point is that history would tell us uh, that actually at the peak of violence is where real change was created. Exactly. Right. So 99% of protesters are peacefully out there demonstrating, looking for justice, right? We, you, have, you always have a group of fools who are out there looting, doing whatever, right? Taking advantage of information. That is life, that's the nature of life. But the idea that it invalidates a movement, right? We have, what do we have every single year when sports teams win or lose a championship? We got a bunch of people who go out and burn cars, tear, break things. Nobody has a problem with that. Nobody says, look at those guys but it's because they're tearing up there. It's because it's with these protests, they're making, they're making it impossible for you to turn a blind eye. You, you don't like, people love to look at the outcome and not the cause, right? So Martin Luther King once said, rise for the language of the unheard, right? So while you can't condone them, you understand if I'm trying to speak with you and have a conversation, right? We have kids, you have kids, I have kids. If you, if you ignore your kid, if you keep, if they have something important to tell you and you're dismissing them and you're dismissing them and you're dismissing them and something keeps happening, it is only a natural consequence of, of ignoring them for so long where it's like they, they have to do whatever it takes to get your attention. So I'm, I'm going to uh, make this a little bit personal because you've given us permission to, to go there. And I've heard you talk about, uh, just as a friend, some of the experiences that you've had personally. Because I think somebody listening could say, okay, you know, DDA, I can get on board with some of what you're saying. Uh, that makes sense to me. But, but I haven't had that experience. So I'd love for you to give us some of your experience uh, as a child, through adolescence, uh, maybe even in business. Like, how has being a, a successful black man in today's America shape the way that you view people and view society? Uh, sure. So I, I think for me, 
I'm very, let me first of all say I'm extremely fortunate. I have parents, you know, that came from Barbados. My mom's from Barbados, my dad's from Haiti. They came over here in the early 70s on the backs of what Martin Luther King and all the civil rights activists had done. So there is a sense, there's a certain privilege I have where my parents were able to come from their islands with their established culture, come over here and thrive. There is a, there, there's a privilege in that that I have because they were not beaten down by systemic oppression. Where they were, they came over here with, through a path that somebody else paved and were able to come go to school and were gonna put me in the best, with the, give me the best chance to succeed. So with that, my parents were not going to let anything hold them back. We're not going to be intimidated by anything. They said, we don't care what neighborhood it is, we're putting you in the best neighborhood with the best, um, in the best area, give you the best opportunity to succeed. So for me, I was the first, I went to Catholic school growing up. I was the first black kid in, in my school. Uh, I integrated the school in 1986 in a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, you know, my parents were a little nervous about going to school. They would always ask me how I was doing, if there was anything that I needed. You know, every year they would ask, hey, did you know, anything happen? Are you okay? And by and large, my experience was great. I have friends, some kids that I went, a couple of kids I went to grade school with in first grade are clients of mine today. But at the same time, from the onset, you think about how racial situations can shape your life or change the tra trajectory of your life. And when we're talking about systemic racism, I'll give you a quick story. I had uh, my first grade teacher was 22 years old, fresh out of college, um, young, energetic. We loved her. We were the first class she ever taught. She graduated in May, my first grade class. She started teaching in September at this school that I integrated. This is my first year. Meanwhile, my parents, in preparation for putting me in the school, had that entire summer um, wanted me to be overprepared. So their motto was, you're going to have to be twice as good to get half as far. So summer between kindergarten and first grade, my dad, who's a chemical engineer, math was his thing. They would have me, my dad would line up these math problems that would be, I'm five years old. It'd be 387 minus 282. I'm doing that in first, before first grade. So I would be overly prepared to get into school. So fast forward, I get into, you know, we're in the first grade and my parents noticed towards the end of the first semester, there is, my math work is still like one plus one, zero. It doesn't seem to be getting any harder. And my parents are asking me, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? Like, why is this? Why are you still doing this chapter, this thing? And I, long story short, I let it slip. I said, well, there's different groups. And my parents said, well, what group are you in? Right, like what group, what math group are you in? So they had split us into math, uh, into groups in math. And there was the advanced group, the regular group, and the remedial group. My first grade teacher had put me in the remedial group for math. So she has no clue I'm over-prepared. 
right? My parents, if I'm doing math at a high second grade level, and this woman puts me in the lowest group. So my parents call a conference with the teacher and the principal, and you know they're fumbling over their words. My teachers kind of don't know what to say. And she said, oh, I put them here because of this. And my parents were like, but why? What is this based off of? His grades are all, what did you put him in the lowest group for? So my parents were insulted. We were going over to Haiti my, uh, for vacation for three weeks over Christmas break. And my parents said, my son needs to be not in the regular group. He needs to be in the top group. And she said, oh, you know, was like, that's impossible. He's so far behind. And they said, don't worry, he'll be ready. So I brought my math books with me over Christmas break, did math all the three weeks over Christmas break in Haiti. And January, boom, right in the top group and to the top of my class where I stayed in advanced honors math for the entirety of my schooling. And you think about that, that woman, I, I, I don't know if she was racist, but it's pretty safe to say there is something, she's born in you know, the 60s, right? She's born in the early 1960s and she probably had in her head well, he's black. He's in this space. I'm gonna, he, he, he probably can't do the work. When my parents had overly prepared me. So if my parents had been any less involved in my life, any less involved, right? Because they were already great parents for putting me in that environment to learn in a great school. But now if they had been a little bit busier or just didn't check a little bit more, I would have been permanently viewed as a remedial math student. And that's what we're trying, that's, that is what we're fighting against. It's not, it, the benefit of the doubt wasn't even that I was normal, right? So it wasn't even, he's normal. She put me in a remedial math class when I was the best math student in that class. Yeah, and it's just the, it's the bias, right? It's the unconscious bias that, that to your point, maybe she wasn't racist, right? But uh, the fact of the matter is the way that she thought about you based on the color of your skin changed your experience, um, which is so much of what we're talking about, right? Uh, for those people that maybe don't self-identify as, uh, as racist, um, but there's a lot of undertones and there has been, right? Which is, which is part of the reason we wanted to have you on and, and have this conversation. Um, my last question, uh, DDA for you, I technically got one more after this, but um, there's different steps to understanding, right? For somebody that is doing the reflection and wants to be better, wants to grow, uh, I think we have to just accept that there, there might be a subset of people that doesn't want to, right? They're stuck in their ways and, and maybe they don't want to change. But for the person that says, hey, I, I want to change. I want to do better. I want to know more. I want to understand deeper. Um, what would you recommend to somebody that, that wants to go deeper in their understanding about race and their own bias and maybe some of their own blind spots. How, how does a white person go down the path of understanding in, in your mind? Well, I think it starts with knowledge, right? And I think what, again, with the avoidance, there is a real lack of understanding of history in this country. And I think it starts with understanding the history of the, the criminalization and the racial under, they didn't happen by accident. And I think watching documentaries like the 13th 
or about reconstruction or understanding how this stuff has come to pass, right? So, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's not even, when you step back and actually think about it, it is not logical that a country can enslave a group of people for, you know, for hundreds of years, set them free, restrict their rights, criminalize them, and then say at 1968, hey, all right, sorry, here are your rights and expect that in 2020 that we there this is all going to be solved right i'm i was born in 1980 martin luther king was shot in 1968 that is 12 years that is obama's first term to now that is no time at all and i still think you know i'm a pretty young i'm a pretty young guy so if you think about it from that lens right you cannot say you can't start a race over 450 years before another group of people and then say, okay, you can start now and wonder why they haven't caught up. So your, your step one is understand the facts, right? Take a look at history and um, it, it does tell us so much. You know, I saw a picture of a young uh, black boy sitting at a diner and there, there's a group of white guys around him, you know, boys, you know, maybe, 10, 12 years old and they're staring at him. Right. And they're judging him and they want him out of the diner. There's like these 15 white kids surrounding this one black boy. He's just trying to like eat his lunch at this diner. And what hit me so hard is the caption of the picture said, let's be mindful. Our grandparents could be in this picture. Right. Like, and that hit home to me. Like, you're right. We just don't undo things that quickly. Right. Like if it's true that our grandparents or for some listening, your parents, depending on your age, could literally be standing in that picture. And so for, for a group of people that were raised that way, not to make generalizations, right? Not everybody in that era was raised that way, but there, but there are people that they, they had that upbringing, right? And they were taught that that was okay. And so it, it, it is going to take uh, great intentionality to unwind deep-rooted thinking that has existed for generations and still exists today. And I think that's a great point, and that's a great topic for another conversation. When you think about it, this is, you know, what our parents lived through and grandparents. And it's not only that, it's not only they could be in the picture, but they lived that, they grew up thinking that was fine. And then with no training, no, it was just a laws passed. Right. So if you think about the lack of conversation or beyond here's a law, like you're not going to like if you think about it, it's insane to think people's views are going to change without actually actively, actively working towards that change. Right. Actually learning. Oh, wow. What actually happened? It's it's begrudgingly giving people their rights. And then like racism problems don't just fizzle or die out. You have to, just like you actively have to work for success in business and in your life, you actively have to work against racism and to make this world a more inclusive place. Well, you've stood in the gap for a long time, man. And, and I just have respected the way that you've had conversations with others. I think one thing I want to point out is you've been able to do that lovingly and, uh, and you've done it with great care for people around you and you've been patient with people around you. So you've just been such a great model of what it looks like to effectively and winsomely have these conversations with other people. 
in a way that does create change and raises awareness. And I, I just see you as a person who, uh, you know, is, is respected in this space. Um, you're being asked for your time, for your opinion, your voice matters. You've got a great group of people that follow you and that number is growing all the time. Um, if people wanted to follow you, DDA, can you give them uh, just a, a couple ways that they could do that, check you out and follow your journey? Sure. Um, so Instagram, it's uh, at DDA Occident, um, D-I-D-I-E-R-O-C-C-I-D-E-N-T at Twitter at DDA Occident. Um, and then we have at Occident Wealth Management on Instagram as well. Um, and then we're at STB, STB program um, on Twitter as well. Well, I, I believe, man, that you're going to continue to be asked uh, for your time and, and for your voice. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, you've already been interviewed by some really influential people in today's America. And I think that's a testament to your understanding of the current environment that we're in. Uh, it's a testament to your hard work to get to where you're at in life and in business, um, but also as a leader of a family. And so, man, I'm just honored to be your friend, bro. I'm honored to spend time with you. And uh, I know over the last, call it 40 minutes, I got a little bit better myself. So thanks for imparting your wisdom and sharing the truth. Absolutely, man. Anytime. All right, brother. Be well. All right. You too, bro. This has been another episode of the Montgomery Company's podcast. I just want to say thank you for tuning in and for checking us out. Stay tuned. We will have more conversations with DDA Occident moving forward. Again, DDA, thank you for your time. Thanks for your voice. And thank you for all that you stand for. Check us out on iTunes and Spotify, the Montgomery Company's podcast. We'll be bringing you more content real soon. Be well. Be well.